Thanks for joining us for the Small Talk Big Ideas podcast, a podcast to enrich your soul, where we have conversations with inspiring people about all things property, business, and life. And now, the host of Small Talk Big Ideas, Ian Ugate. On this episode, we talk to Scott Agate, a person introduced to me by Jane Slacksmith, and other podcast, and I hope you enjoy today. Scott went to a near-death experience in his early ages and has now started HelloHouse.co, a negotiation business for property owners or property purchasers that want to do the best out of their purchase, and he gets paid from saving you money, so that's a good outcome. Enjoy today's episode of Small Talk Big Ideas and as usual you can follow us on all the social media channels. Scott Agat. That's it. Hello. Hello house. <laughs> Hello house. H-A-U-S. Yeah. So like um, the car house. Well German house. Oh is that right? Yeah. Which matches with my daughter's name Elsie which is short for Elizabeth in German and my son Wolfgang who's uh, fairly German <laughs> so you have a German background no we don't have any food. well I should say that my wife her mother is a Schroeder they're Kiwis 100% but um there is definitely a, a German bloodline there but we didn't we didn't name Elsie for any reference to um German history and Wolfgang or Wolfie we just love the name we wanted a strong male name that was an old name yeah. like Elsie is as well um and that's not used it's not common it's interesting because you could talk about past lives and perhaps you were in a past life if you believe in that is he german yeah possibly yeah like we <laughs> we uh our marriage was based on what i saw in braveheart so i always had an affinity to <laughs> scottish type stuff and so the tartan we don't have any wedding bands so the tartan um that in the ceremony in Braveheart was, you know, they tore a section of the tartan off and they wrap around the hand and that was part and, you know. Sweet. That's the, so we actually did that. We wrapped a ribbon around each other's hands, cut the ribbon. She put half around my neck, I put half around hers. So, um, but I've always wondered whether, you know, an indigenous, indigenous is the other thing for me. I've got a Australian indigenous as a big attraction to me to help out there. I wonder whether you're a German. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question, isn't it? And the, I used to live in London for five years and I twice came across people that did, um, you know, history, bloodlines, surnames and things. And Agate is not a common name. Um, and you can trace that back to kind of um, Staffordshire in mid to North England. But the two surname people that I met, the historians, one said it was Welsh and the other one said it was um, Agate, which was the first or the last family in the village, the gatekeeper. Right. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe it was a village in in um, you know outside of Hamburg. Who knows? So there is an agate crystal as well. Yeah, A G A T E. Yeah. Different spelling. We yep. name all our structures, our purchasing structures, over crystals. Nice. So we pick a crystal with an energy that we like, and then we go down that line. Anyway, no one really knows what you do yet. Um, so let's start. <laughs> let's start with firstly. Uh, I'll, ask you, I'll ask you the question are you a buyer's agent no i am not a filthy buyer's agent <laughs> i've always got a problem in general and i say a, a very big um percentage of general i don't like buyer's agents i think they have a conflict of interest finding you a property so that they get paid keep talking yeah and um so i'll do i'll do it in for you <laughs> um i'm i'm yet to find I think I may have found one or two buyers agents that I think consistently does very good for their for purchases for their clients, but otherwise I think 
getting paid and you know we've got a buyer's agency getting paid um so that you because you found something for someone means that you don't necessarily you might cross over the line and go well it's not quite right but i'll get it for them anyway yeah the incentives aren't aligned as far as i'm concerned but i agree with what you just said then that there's there's legitimate buyers agents and i've come across quite a few of those in my dealings as an estate agent previously in my former life so i'm not i'm not out there bad mouthing buyers agents in general i was just doing that as a joke but i do think the incentives aren't aligned and that's a major problem um and i say that from experience and i think you know it's you hear a lot of people that will commentate on these things in the property industry, but unless you've sat in all those seats and understand how the dynamics of a deal really works, mm. it's difficult to be an expert to pass judgment on that. So I think I'm coming from a good place that I was an estate agent. I saw it day to day. I dealt with buyers agents nonstop. And they were the first buyers you know, that we called. If we had a property that we knew wanted to sell for big money quickly and we knew they had a buyer that just missed out on something else, we would ring them and we would make them pay an absolute premium with cream on top. Yeah. Um, and they did that because they knew they had a client and it wasn't and as far as i'm concerned it was an easy sale for them so i looked at it and thought this is just it's it's another version of being an estate agent which is just full of holes that you can punch through it Mm. um good buyers agents will always do the right thing and represent their clients good estate agents will always do the right thing and represent both sides of the coin as best they can there's plenty of really good agents out there as well But there's also lots of you know really average agents but it's the same in every industry yeah now you like we'll briefly talk about the business that you that I think is really interesting, which is Hello House. Yeah. Um, you're a negotiator. Yeah. Tell us how that works. Well, the number one thing that I enjoyed about being a real estate agent was the argy-bargy of negotiation time. So I got out of the industry in 2015, incredibly frustrated by the lying and the game playing that you've got to do on both sides of it, dealing with vendors, winning listings, and also dealing with the buyers to get them in position to, to action a purchase. So I was burnt by the industry. I'd been in it for 20 years and I wanted to do something that was completely transparent and come at it um, to service the buyers, which I thought, you know, it's a bad term, but they're really lambs to the slaughter, really. When you go up against a trained estate agent that, that works on scripts and dialogues daily or weekly, um, versus someone that might be into the market every seven or 10 years as a one-off transaction that's hugely emotional, it's just not fair. So I thought this can be done better. Um, I will build a transparent, you know, real estate business here that uh, helps purchasers and tries to make a difference in the marketplace. So that's kind of how I, I started on the negotiation journey because it was something that I really loved. So rather than being buyer's agent, the client finds the property mm-hmm. and you end up negotiating on behalf of the client and see if you can get it for the price or less than what you both agree on. Yeah. So I really say that I'm the insurance policy you need as a buyer that you A, win the property and B, that you buy it for the least amount possible. Yeah. And that's pretty simple. So I work closely with people that have got the ability to find their own properties. They can do their own legwork and then I step in. I'm happy to coach them up until a certain point where they engage me if they find the right property that they want to, they want to trigger. Um, and then we get them to set a target price. Um, I ask them to set it because I want that transparency first. Uh, and then I'll talk to them and workshop it if it needs to be moved, if I think they're unrealistic and they're not gonna buy the property because that's the first goal is to own it. Uh, I'll reset that and then ascertain how I build a strategy around it to buy it at the lowest price I can. Okay, we'll talk about that in more detail, but let's talk about you and mm-hmm. um, where you grew up, where were you born, where did you grow up? Uh, I was born in Ride. Lived there till I was three and then lived on the Gold Coast. My dad had a service station at Mermaid Beach. So we, we lived there from when I was three till nine in Palm Beach. That would have been very different back then. Yeah, it was awesome. Just grew up the whole time on a canal and swimming nonstop with my dog. And it was so much fun. We had a great, I had such fond memories of Palm Beach and the Gold Coast. 
and then went home at nine and we moved back to Epping and then kind of did all my schooling in uh, in Epping and what school? I went to Epping Epping Public and Epping Boys. Right. Yeah. So Happy rug, with that education. School. Oh, I hated school to be honest. Right. I had amazing friends. I had a great group of friends, but I absolutely hated being told what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I had this really bad um, attitude towards teachers, which I really regret now as an adult and as a father. Um, but I, I had this, I don't know, this idea in my mindset from a very young age that why should I listen to you about this when you've never gone out and done it in the real world? Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't get my head around that. And I just didn't listen. And uh, I had a football in my hand the entire time. And all I wanted to do was play sport. Do you ever have an opportunity to go back and or run into any of the teachers that you, you were... No, not really, actually. It'd be interesting to go back and have a chat to them. But yeah, it's not until I think the year came... Well, A, when I you know, got a lot smarter as an adult, but B, had children. Does that really sink in for me about how silly that attitude was? But it, that's just the reality. You can't oh, look yeah. back at it and change those views. That was what, what I went through at the time. I think, it, well, there's a level of intelligence that happens there that there is an IQ that allows you to think differently, whereas most are falling into the line of, you know, I have to do this and I'll just keep on learning. I've got a daughter that's, you know, th- into a third school. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting because um, the second school, which is a Christian college, um, not that we're, we're Christians, it's just it was a school to send her to see if she could get into alignment. Uh, her younger sister, who started year seven this year, Macy's in year 11, um, so she's moved on to another school, but the younger one is now at the older school. And and I ran into a teacher and the, the it's just a buzz in the staff room. How can this child be from the same family? Because they were making judgments about us. Um, but, but Macy's just an extraordinarily intelligent person and, and is starting to learn, like you said, um, that now there's a regret about, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done it that way and I should have said it differently. And for me, uh, you know, I went to a private boys school in Sydney and um, I always felt like they were um, picking me out, that you know I always got in trouble because of whatever. And I had the opportunity to go back and speak to the um, headmaster uh, that you know was the one that was always picking on me, and thankfully was old enough at that point in time to say to him, I completely understand what you were doing and yeah. how I was out of line and how I thought I was the one in the conspiracy theory here. And <laughs> we had a really great conversation. It was it was really I'm sure lots fun. of kids have a challenge with that same sort of outlook, aren't they? Or for different reasons as well. But yeah, as I say, you can't you can't go back and paint over these things. That was part of the, my childhood and the experience. But you know, I really didn't enjoy it. And I think that's what probably drove me into you know, getting into a sales job or something that I could do and and be the master of my own destiny pretty quickly after I left school. So, so you left school, what did you do? Uh, I did a full-time, the full-time real estate licensing course at TAFE in Crow's Nest. So I did that for a year and then I started working at Ray White Head Office in the city in the CBD. Yeah, right. Yeah. And um, in commercial? No, I did kind of just like the office lackey job. Um, one of my sort of family members um, is uh, married to my sister's side, actually, is, is Peter Matthews. I don't know if you mm-hmm. know Peter. Yep. He's one of Australia's leading auctioneers and was a um, phenomenal real estate agent himself in Sydney. Um, and I did my work experience at school um, with Pete at Ray White in Bankstown. <laughs> and you <laughs> my... probably didn't even realise who he was or... Oh, no. Well, I mean, I knew who he was because he was effectively family at that point. But, right. Um, but yeah, right from age 16, I did that as work experience. I went out and be a sales agent at Ray White. Um, yeah, and Pete got me this job at head office where he was doing a lot of auctioneering work. Mm-hmm. And I would set up the auction rooms and I would 
collate all the franchise um, numbers from across the country and report to um, to Brian White. Yeah, so I had, a, oh, that was just a, an office lucky job. But what I got to do, which was fantastic, the best part of that was I was A, seeing all the numbers from the offices, all the franchise numbers, what they were doing, which was really interesting. And B, I was physically at every single corporate auction they did. And they might do, I don't know, I can't remember, 10 or 20 on a, every Thursday or every Tuesday and Thursday. So yeah. I've just watched so many auctions, more more than most people, unless you're an auctioneer. I've seen so many of them play. Because it was interesting, we were last night uh, with our, uh, private mentoring students that came up hot market right now. Yeah. Um, one of them's going to auction. You know what's the auction techniques and to and and I said just go to as many as you can go to because yeah. you're going to see a whole bunch of scenarios play out. You're going to see the same thing repeating itself from the auctioneer. You know it drives me insane. Going once, going twice. So I'll just go seek some instructions. Yeah, you just go. Yeah. Fuck, <laughs> we know it's going to happen. <laughs> it's like it's like going to a property spruik, a wealth creation seminar. This is seventy five thousand dollars worth, but today you can get it for five. You go, come on. Yeah. Are we that stupid? Yeah. Um. Okay. So you start working in there. When do you actually get to the front face of selling properties? Well, I did property management first, so I did three years, and the first three years, so I did. Um, Ray White DY, Ray White Linfield. I did some sales at Linfield as well, just selling apartments and things like that. And then I got to age, I must have been 20, and I was playing rugby at that point for Eastwood and then changed over and played for Gordon. Good player? Uh, not really. I played first grade Colts with Sterling Mortlock and Joel Wilson, a few players that played for the Wallabies the following year. Yep. That's my claim to fame. But I was always the um, kind of just getting into the first grade Colts team. At, what position? At, uh, fullback. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I had those two guys, future Wallabies, in in front of me. So I basically never made a tackle for the whole season, which was Bastards. good. Yeah. Bastards. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, interesting. Um, do you think, in hindsight, that you could have made it to top level? Oh, uh, I don't think so. I, I just wasn't, I don't think I was motivated enough. And yeah. I was full of self-doubt. Like, at, I think at that age... Um, it's probably taken me quite a fair few years, maybe even, even to my 30s, that I got more confidence around what so I could actually do. So that's my question. With, the, with, the, yeah. with what you know now and the confidence you got now, firstly, would you have wanted to get to the top grade? And with what you know now, do you think it would have got you there? Um, probably would have wanted to. Whether I physically could have done it is a different story. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think if you've got the desire to and whatever body shape you are, you can probably get... Um, you can probably arrive at those things. But yeah, it's interesting to look back at it like that. But I think it comes down to want, isn't it? Like if you look back at it, whether the confidence is one thing, but I clearly didn't want it enough. Mm. It just wasn't a priority enough for me. I saw it more as a social thing, I think, at that age than I did a um, you know, a career, a potential career. And I did this with tennis as well. When I was, I think, 14, just turned 15, I went to America playing tennis tournaments, mm. to America and Canada. And I was never good enough to ever break through or do anything that was compelling so i kind of never tried any harder than that if you know what i mean like i was playing probably six or seven days a week socially and different competitions and things but i knew i'd never get to that level so i just stopped right. and then i never played tennis i haven't played tennis since i was 15. i basically came home from america and i've never picked up a tennis racket yeah i'm a little bit same with golf i was a pretty decent golfer it <laughs> i think it was i think it was 12 off 12. So wow. 12 years old hitting a 12 handicap yeah and it was going down and you know just didn't take it up Lost any further. Uh, okay, so you're playing footy. You've sold a few properties through Linfield. Yep. When do you get to really sell? Um, well, I think it depends how much you want to dig into this, really. But at age 20, I had an opportunity. I really wanted to travel. I massively had the travel bug and hadn't really been overseas other than that American trip. 
um, when I was 15. So um, together with my girlfriend at the time then, um, she was at university at UTS doing a business degree. She's since gone on to do Three Birds renovations. Oh, is that her? One yeah, of Lana. She's the driving force behind that. So she's still married to Jason footy, Taylor. Yeah, the footy, footy player. player. Yeah, so JT and Lana are still really close friends of mine. Um, but Lana and I were together then, and and I think it was just on my twenty first birthday, and she was at UTS, and I really wanted to go travelling. So I had I thought, how am I going to do this and get a job over there? I want to go snowboarding, so I want to go and do this for and try and work out if I can get a job in the ski field. So I um, forged her university results <laughs> and um, scanned them with my name over the top of it, sent that to the U.S. embassy, got myself a work visa for the U.S. And then got a job as a snowboard instructor in Colorado, <laughs> and I had um, I had snowboarded for about maybe 14, 15 days ever in my life over say five years before that. Completely self-taught, completely useless, like a horrible, horrible snowboarder. And I got there, and I thought, how am I going to do this at this ski school like, and try and get a job? And they had maybe eighty or hundred kids. Um, trialing for the ski and snowboard team to become instructors, all of which were American and Canadian and a couple of people from overseas. And I, I did this lesson with them and I was the worst by far. It was embarrassing how bad I was. They all grew up in the snow and, and they were all gun skiers and snowboarders. I was but absolutely let me guess, terrible. They let me guess, they love the accent. They love the accent, but not only do they love the accent, they love the fact that I was a salesperson because all oh, the other kids right. were bong heads. <laughs> um and ski bums and i could sell so they were like this is gold so a you've got this great accent and b you can sell so you're in you're on the snowboard team so i just every day went along with the <laughs> snowboard pro and skill, got better skill versus talent yeah exactly to match your story so yeah. i became a snowboard instructor in colorado and then um that finished on australia day 1999 by a very large tree that i hit at full speed Ooh. so that was the end of my rugby and all other sport and start of my terrible back pain and end of my snowboarding career well so pause the snowboard crew we'll come back to that later i'm sure so what happened so just lost control hit a tree head on or um i was with lana actually she came over to see me for a week and with a whole group of mother friends that were there that i'd made in that ski season and it was the last run of the day at vale and uh, we'd gone up the gondola together there's about eight or ten of us and someone had said last run of the day meet you at the bottom and someone else said never ever say it's the last run of the day it's bad luck got to the top. I was riding really fast because obviously I was, I was instructing that point and riding all day, every day. So I let them all ride off into the sunset down to the bottom of the mountain on this huge long run until I couldn't see them. And I thought I'll chase them and I'll beat them to the bottom. So I started doing a few turns, built up my speed to full speed, heading towards the woods on a wide open run, hit a little snow cookie, lost my edge and went straight into the, the woods. And it wouldn't have been a, you know, it wasn't a particular tree. I would have hit whatever tree there was just, I, I was heading straight for it. And I remember kind of just trying to almost in that split second, do a baseball slide almost to try to go into it without head first. And I smashed my shoulder, broke my wrist. Um, yeah, crushed my kneecap, like a spider's web, crushed my meniscus inside my knee. Um, and they were and all down the bottom of the hill. They wouldn't have known it They were down the bottom and they couldn't, they couldn't find me. And then, um, so it was the last one of the day starting to get dark, obviously very cold in January. And then they couldn't find me. It went on for about 45 minutes and I was unconscious. I'd fallen into the woods head first down and no one could see me or no one knew where I was because I was the last rider. So everyone's partying for a straight day down the bottom and they're sitting there waiting and they were freaking out. And then, um, yeah, I was very, very lucky. I kind of got my life saved that day. There was two old men cross-country skiing and I was going in and out of consciousness and screaming and um, one of them heard the noise crossed his skis, hiked through the trees up the hill, found me, the other guy skied down and got ski patrol, then came back and then 
put me in the banana boat, you know, cut all my ski gear open, put the heat packs in and the oxygen masks. And they had no idea what I'd done if I'd broken my neck or what it was I couldn't talk. Um, and then put me in the banana boat and got me down. And so there was thousands of people or hundreds of people at least at the bottom of Vale celebrating Australia Day. And then just watch this, my girlfriend just watched this lonely banana boat come down, still had no idea if it was me or what it was. And there was a snowcat ambulance waiting and then straight into the snowcat ambulance. But just before I got into it, I remember, um, I couldn't, I had no idea what I'd done. I thought I'd broken my neck and, or I was a mess. And, um, Lana came screaming over to the ambulance and had me on the ground and was just uncontrollable, just screaming her, her eyes out <laughs> or her lungs out. And I was, I was just panicking because I, I couldn't see what was wrong. I had no idea. And it turns out it, it was nowhere near as bad as what I had I'd thought. Thank God. So yeah. Far out. That was a pretty heavy experience for me. And if it wasn't for those two guys. Yeah, I don't know what would happen, but it's pretty brutally cold in Colorado in, in late Jan as it gets to nightfall. And yeah, I would have thought that I wouldn't have got out of there at not, that night at least. So yeah, you would have been brown bread for sure. Wow. Okay, so um, back to Oz? Yeah, back to Oz on crutches and had surgery in Australia. And then, um, yeah, I kind of had like three months of you know, rehab. And then I thought, what am I going to do? I don't want to be in Australia. I left to go. I wanted to go to the US to go snowboarding and then to England to try and play rugby and get a job in real estate or do some of that. So I thought, oh, well, stuff it. I'll just go to London anyway and land there and see what happens. So I got a two year working holiday visa. And once I'd done my rehab, got on a plane and flew over there and met up with a couple of rugby mates from Sydney that were living there and working and just in a share house. And I went for one job of interview and landed at Foxton's in Islington. Foxton's at that time was kind of like um, well, the best way to explain it is I think McGrath followed Foxton's right. Yeah, in terms of their business model mm -hmm. um, and their branding and how they were really the the star kind of real estate agency in the world, I think, at that point in terms of technology and how they how they went about the business. Um, worked in property management there um, in, in new business lettings, actually, which is exactly the same as sales role. You just match a tenant with a with a, a property and yep. um, yeah, did lots of deals there and did that for nine months and then got poached by a competitor in the street helped set up their business for two years and then got poached by another competitor and did that for another two years, set up their business. Um, and then, yeah, chased my girlfriend at the time home after I, I bought a couple of properties and sold a couple of properties in London. So that was 21 to 25. And then um, chased my girlfriend at the time of five years that I met there when I first arrived um, to come home. She wanted to do a second degree. Um, so yeah, ended up back in Sydney and kind of begrudgingly really. I didn't want to be back, but missed all my friends in the UK and had created a life for myself over there yeah. and was doing really well and um, had to start from scratch in Sydney again. Back to Ray White? No, back to, um, no, I went for one job interview, which was Bell Property in Edgecliff and, or Darlinghurst at the time and got that job um, in sales. So I'd never really been a full-time sales agent, as I said. Mm -hmm. um, so it was kind of starting from scratch. I didn't know anyone in the Eastern suburbs. I wasn't from there. Um, but yeah, started from scratch working with those guys. And it was when it was owned by Chris Meehan, who was the original founder of it. Um, and John Hewson, the politician. Mm -hmm. Um, so did that for, I can't remember the amount of, it must've been two or three years working for sort of head office when they were three franchises. They had one in Manly, um, uh, and then a couple of offices of their own that they owned one in Port Douglas. And then, yeah, they had they were going bankrupt fast and doing a pretty average job of it. Why? Uh, I think they started being property developers and doing things like this in Port Douglas, which just drained their cash. The they built went upside down. Yeah, they built the pool development in Port Douglas, which was really expensive, and I think was just too big too soon. 
um, yeah, just not focused on being residential estate agents. Um, but Chris was an incredible person to follow around, hugely successful estate agent at the time, um, writing big, big numbers, like a James Dack mm. kind of figure in yep. real estate in those days. Yep. Um, coined the term expressions of interest, I think, as well, and started that whole um, sale method in, in Potts Point, Elizabeth Bay, and around those areas. Yep. So he was a really interesting person and quite entrepreneurial to, to sort of work with. Um, but they were going out of business fast and they were just running out of cash. They were about 60 or 70 staff. They were too heavy, so they were cutting back all the time and making adjustments. And they couldn't pay our superannuation. And they came to my boss at the time, Mark Murphy, and said, um, if you and Mark take a franchise, we'll basically trade off your, the super that we owe you and we'll give you a business. Really? Yeah. So that's how Potts, Bell Property Potts Point started was Mark and I trading off our super at the time and um, yeah, starting the first franchise in the eastern suburbs of Bell Property. It's pretty cheap. Or was it? Uh, I don't know. In retrospect, what were we paying for? I mean, a business that was going bankrupt and sure. yeah, so probably not in, in the grand scheme of things, but uh, it just, that's just life. It just, that's how it fell. The cards laid that way. Mm. So I don't look back and think we paid too much or we paid too little. It was just really like, didn't have a choice. Yeah. But also not even the choice, but there's the opportunity, right? That opportunity wasn't there today, yesterday and it's there today. Yeah. So you know, I think you're either one of those people that jump in at that point or you get really tentative. And I was just, you know, two feet in, in half a second and work the rest out later. So you get your first franchise with Bell. 29. At 29. Yep. Um, you had to build a rental role from nothing? Had or? to build everything from scratch. Right. Yeah, all the systems. All we had was the brand to work with and, and that was it. And no real infrastructure because they were going bankrupt. Um, so we, we went on to have a second uh, franchise with them as well. So we opened up Walsh Bay under the Harbour Bridge on the waterfront there. So we had two businesses. And then at that point, Peter Hanscom came in, who's the, the current owner of Bell Property, mm -hmm. uh, who came from Ray White in Brisbane. And he was also CEO, I think, at one point of um, McGrath initially or or um, groomed to be CEO of McGrath. I think John wouldn't step away, step away at that point. So he left. Can I get segue there? Yep. I like what John McGrath's done. I hear he's a very strong personality. Um, have you had much dealings with him? Not really. I've met him personally quite a few times, but I don't know him at all. Because he started, he was an auctioneer. Yeah, and I think he's obviously a phenomenal estate agent and a great business person to get that that um, business to where it is. So I don't have anything bad to say about it. I read at one all, of his yeah. early books and it just made a lot of sense. Very practical, you know. Just, From Monday to Friday, just eat the standard food that you should eat, you know. And if it's not on the menu, just ask him to make you a chicken um, sandwich. I think it was fish, wasn't it? He had fish in every meal and he yeah. laminated all his power words in the shower and he um, <laughs> reversed right. into that's every it. car spot so he could drive out in um, positive fashion forward in the morning. <laughs> See, that, I know. That's where John and I will fall apart because I, I, I we were never meant to be friends. No. You're never meant to be he, friends. Um, yeah. But it was really simple. You know, you sell a house, you go by and say hello to those people all the time because that's front of mind. Next, when they want to totally. sell, they'll be thinking, oh, that was the guy that sold it to me and he's been really nice to me. I'll contact him. Um, we sold one of our properties. We don't sell many properties, but our, our last Sydney property we sold through McGrath. It was Eastern Suburbs and the uh, agent rang me, he goes, oh my God, John just rang me and he tore strips off me because the sold sign was like three millimeters off being parallel <laughs> to the like level. <laughs> he was really upset. Um, yeah. Absolute perfectionist. So, yeah. okay. So now you've got two bells. Two bells. Yeah. And then Peter Hanscom stepped in and, and uh, with a huge vision to grow the business and um, make it into a, you know Australia's leading boutique agency, which he did. Uh, and, and I think when I left, they had, you know, over a, sort of a seven or eight year period, he took it to about 80 franchises, which wow. was awesome. Yeah. So being in that 
hot seat in terms of the first two franchises in the East. That gave me the opportunity to do more franchises and we branched out after I sold um, Potts Point and Walsh Bay. Um, Mark, my business partner at the time, wanted to get out of it and do something different. He moved to London. Uh, he'd had enough of doing that day to day and I still had that kind of, I wasn't ready to get out of real estate, but I absolutely, looking back at it, and even at the time I knew it, I absolutely hated it. I hated it. So I hated the day to day of it, but I just couldn't step away from the earning, you know, that really good money and, and um, building wealth. And I just enjoyed the lifestyle that it afforded me on that side of things. Um, so yeah, I, stupidly or not, I don't know. I, I'm glad I went and did it in, in retrospect, but I didn't enjoy it. Um, but it was a good life experience. I went off and did um, Bell Property Surrey Hills and did that for another four years. And sold that. And sold that at the end of 2015. Yeah, yeah. Right. But that was a real struggle. So move back to Queensland then? Yeah. So <clears throat> the, part of this journey, I guess, is probably to do with my dad as well, because dad was, um, my dad had Parkinson's for 33 years or 35 years and passed away in 2016, in the August of 2016. So we, my sisters and I were all in Sydney as well. And we were, um, you know, constantly with him as much as possible in a nursing home and watching him. But we didn't want to do anything until um, we worked out what happened with dad, really. So, which we knew eventually was going to be him passing. Um, so when he passed away in August, I think we were in Queensland six weeks later. Yeah. So we just, I'd had that year, almost a year of winding down, getting rid of the stress, not working at all. I just had our first child um, in that, in 2015. So a year earlier. And I just wanted to spend time with Elsie and, and Bids, my wife, and yeah, just get the hell away from Sydney and real estate. And my wife's from New Zealand. She's from Christchurch and got no affiliation with Sydney. So yeah, her brother was on the Gold Coast and wanted to, she wanted to come and see the Gold Coast. And yeah, so we kind of made that move. What's it like to see you had a good relationship with your father? Yeah, very close. And yep. what's it like to see that, you know, over many years, the, the, the fall down of his health and get to that point? Yeah, it's, so it's crushing watching your strong man like that go through that change in your life for such a long period. It was horrible for my sisters and I and for, and for our mum. But it is what it is, right? Like this is part of life and he, he did as well as he could. He was a real family man and engaged with all the grandkids and stuff like that. Probably the hardest thing for me was A, watching that, but B, then not having my kids have him around, mm. like to have that grandparent. I, when I grew up, I had um, one grandparent, the other three had passed away. So I don't have any, any recollection of those. So I didn't want that, obviously. No one wants that for their, for their children. So that was probably a tough thing. I think that's, um, that's probably one of the things for me. I mean, I'm, I'm a child of um, immigrants to Australia, Australian born, only just. Could have been conception on a plane. <laughs> um, Where from? From Spain, north okay. of Spain. And um, yeah, so I had three grandparents alive, but... Um, I only really got to meet them twice. Yeah. And I, I look at my children. So Christine's parents have passed away. So they really only have two grandparents, my kids, and we moved them away from Sydney. Yeah. And I, I've got this great regret that I see other people have a bond with their grandparents and it's, and it's, it's one of the regrets of moving up here. I mean, I, I love being in Queensland, but yeah. Yeah. Family's pretty key, isn't it? But we, um, it's probably a good segue to, to the fast forward to today where we're at. I'm just finishing a renovation on a property that we've bought as an interim home for us, which will be hopefully a long-term investment property. But I bought literally five meters away from my in-laws. Yeah, right. So I bought them a house last year um, or found them a house. They, they bought it themselves um, that I gutted and renovated for them. 
was a waterfront townhouse in Mermaid Waters and we've literally bought, there's one in between us attached. Right. So we're literally five meters away from them. So I'm trying to work out a way now how I can dig a tunnel through to my father-in-law's <laughs> wine collection. <laughs> and also have like a babysitting gate where I can exchange my children for wine. <laughs> yeah, the only way to get um, your You can your have Wolfie, but you'll need that bottle of um, Central Otago Pinot scan, to come with, come with scan him. Scan the barcode on the way through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we're really close. Like they're they're so amazing. My my wife's parents. They're such beautiful humans, and all they want is to be involved with the grandkids. So they are literally. My kids are just in their house nonstop. Like my son will wake up. He's two and a half, and like I want to go to Nan's house. It's the first thing he says. Yep. And Nan will be at the door before he gets a chance to say, "I want to go to Nan's house." Yeah, so yeah. it's it's quite awesome. sweet. But they have their own privacy, and they and don't. That's great. They're not on our. Yeah. back at all they're just super chilled there's a lot of there's a lot to be said about multi-generational homes you yeah know, um where you know if i had stayed in spain i would be living i would have lived in a multi-generational i'd still be living in a multi-generational like my you know my parents would be living with me and you know very much an an, an asian culture thing where actually your your grandparents bring up the children yeah while the parents go out and work but it's big in so many corners of the world isn't oh, it oh yeah it's, yeah, yeah. it's it's not a unique thing so yeah we've really enjoyed having them close by and, and having the family but of course what comes with that is you miss what you left behind in sydney right so i've got two sisters one's in sydney and i miss that family dearly and only get to see them occasionally not often enough and mm. then coming up here was nice because my sister lives in palmview and my mum lives in budrum so right. i got to see both of them last night and your smiley face today <laughs> easy um where'd you meet your wife uh at Mankind, which is like a male grooming shop on Crown Street in Surrey Hills. She was my therapist. She was a skin specialist. Therapist. Yeah, well, skin skin <laughs> therapist. Skin, so yeah. someone who fixes your skin and then counsels you at the same problem, well, the problems a, in the world. It's quite a nice story, actually. Uh, my best friends gave me a voucher to get a massage or a facial or something like that. And I had never had one in my life. I'm not a guy that likes massages. I'm not into it at all. I'd never had a facial in my life. It sat on my fridge as a bachelor for a, the best part of a year with a use-by date on it. And then I thought, oh, I better go use that, 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 you know, out of respect to my friends that gave me this beautiful present. So booked in this this spot, it was across the road from my office, Mankind, opposite the, the clock on Crown Street there. Went in and um, met Bridget. So she was the she was the girl that was going to do the facial. And normally guys, I'd be, I've been told, go in there and just basically fall asleep or, you know, quiet time for an hour while someone massages you or works on your skin or do whatever. But because I was nervous and I'd never done this before, and I was just, you know, fish out of water, I was just doing what I always do, talk. <laughs> so I started talking and Bids is actually quite a quiet person, a real introvert. Um, but she was answering my questions and talking and engaging and the rest of it. And basically it just became a counseling session. Like, you know, I was, actually I wasn't a bachelor at that point. I was right at the end of a relationship that I'd been in for five years that I was trying to get out of actively that I wasn't enjoying. And I had a, you know, I just spent time talking to her and I got on really well and just chatted and then went again three months later, six months later, and then had a similar conversation. Where are you up to now? Well, I've broken up from that person and I'm single and the rest of it and this is what I'm up to and what about you? And then I went again another three months later and and then Bridget asked me, who are you looking for? Like, well, you know, what? who are you trying to find? And I said to her, um, this is probably a cheesy line, but it wasn't delivered cheesily. I said, somebody just like you with great banter someone that I have fantastic banter with. And we kind of both laughed and then I asked her out on a date and then married her. Yeah, it was a match made in heaven. And that was the last massage she ever gave you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Interestingly enough for Christine, 
um, I had just finished a massage course and I gave her a massage um, as one of our first dates. Yeah. So anyway, that sounds sleazy. Um, so you then are on the Gold Coast. You've got a few businesses. Yeah. So the long story with the Gold Coast one is, so we moved when I said to you when dad passed away and then I said to Bids, so that's what I call my wife Bridget, Bids. Um, I said to Bids at the time, I want to go to Italy or France, learn another language, not speak to any other humans, live in the countryside with our kid and just live a completely different lifestyle for a year or two years and just see what happens in our life and what direction we go. Because we absolutely love Italy in particular, but we've got family in Spain and things as well. But anyway, so um, Bids is like, yep, fine. We'll go to Europe and do this because that's a dream of yours and, and she loves traveling as well. But she said, on the way to going to Europe, can we go to see my brother and family on the Gold Coast and spend a bit of time there? Because I never get a chance to see them. And I said, yeah, sure. I love the Gold Coast. I never go up there anymore. Got fond memories there. So let's go up. We'll go up for like a month or two. And she's like, that's awesome. That'll be great. So then I thought about going up there. I was like, I really want to be a property developer, whether I do this here, there or somewhere else. And Gold Coast is a lot cheaper to do it. It's, you know, it's an easy place to get started. It's familiar. Um, why don't I buy a house up there and we'll go and move into it and I'll renovate it from Sydney and I'll do it, you know, fly in and fly out and, and do it. So I did this for a matter of maybe two months and I would fly up. I'd see 15 open for inspections or 20 in a day and fly back the same night. Mm-hmm. And I did that for maybe yeah, four to eight weeks until I knew the market. I was looking specifically at one suburb. So I really honed in on that. So realistically, cause it, cause this is something comes up all the time, you know, um, Christine's good enough now that within eight hours, she could probably get to know a market really well. Yeah, um, I'm the same. So effectively, you're the same. I'm the same, yeah. But that comes from years and years and years and years of experience. Yeah, to know what you're looking for and to look at, at uh, the things that are potentially hiding, I guess, you, you know, what's not being told in the story. But once you identify a suburb, it's pretty easy then just to load up on the data and, and sure. dig into the recent sales and what's currently on the market. So yeah, I did that, bought a house, renovated it moved in in September that year and then thought, actually, we really love it here. And then we four and a half years later, we're still there and I've done six houses in four and a half years. So you still haven't got to Italy yet? Still haven't gone. Well, <clears throat> been to Italy lots of times on holidays in yeah. that meantime, but never made it to live there. And I yeah. doubt now in retrospect that we'll we'll get to do that for some time because we're now- At that age. It, it's school age now, mm-hmm. right? With our first. So if you were to go to Italy, regardless of timing, where would you, you know, would you be going into something in the hills and an older estate house and doing that up or? No, I think we would go to um, Sicily or Sola de Elba, like an island off Tuscany there or up near Genoa, you know, uh, it's got to be coastal. We both love the water. So wherever it is, it's going to be lapping onto, onto the Mediterranean. Yeah. Even if it was something small, but yeah, definitely a love affair with the water and Italian food and language. Okay, so you're now on the Gold Coast, living there, everything's good, uh, and you find that you think you can probably fulfill a market that doesn't exist because I don't know if there's, it's the first time I've ever heard of anyone that does what you do. In terms of the Hullo House, the negotiation side of things? Yeah. Yeah, well, it was it was burning a hole in my my brain for a few years because I'd been, had I had this idea for probably a decade plus from when I was an estate agent. And just didn't really know how to execute on it. And probably going back to your motivation point, wasn't motivated to execute on it because I had other things that was going on. But I realized that to do the development thing, which I, which is my passion, which is what I really love, architecture and design and buying properties, which is really enjoy that part of it. I needed to have an income stream because it was just lumpy and risky. So I thought, okay, well, I've got to build a business myself. Let's build a business that I can stay in t-shirt and shorts. I can stay at home with the kids. 
I can be with my wife all the time. I can travel whenever I want to. I don't have any staff and I can do something that I love. What is it? I was like, hello house, that negotiation business. So that's how it was kind of born. And then I just had to work out, get it out of my head onto paper and, and you know, model out how it could potentially work. But um, that was challenging because as you said, no one's done it before and, and no one's still doing it today. So it really was, without sounding egotistical, it was breaking new ground. So there was no model for me to follow. You know, I was just had, had to work it out on the run. So it's hellohouse.co. Yes. Uh, a few testimonials there. And um, so what was your first, what was your first conversation to get the first project um, or the first client? Uh, I think I promoted it through my own social networks and just and put it out there on Facebook that I'm launching this and this is what I'm going to do. And then I had um, friends and family in different areas refer on friends that, that were looking to buy or in the market that were having challenges. Um, and what you realize is you scratch the surface, as you well know, everybody knows someone buying a home in Australia because it's like contact sport. Australians love talking about it at dinner parties and mm -hmm. at family meetups. Um, everyone knows someone that's going through it. Everyone has problems going through it because it's just not easy, the buying process when you're buying a home in Australia. Um, so there's no shortage of clients, right? There's tons of people that need help. It's just finding those people and letting them know that that service exists. But that's probably the problem today still that it's a niche service that's, um, I'm still really finding its feet, working out how to market it, how to advertise it. So my referrals come from mortgage brokers and then friends and family in my own social, social networks. And mortgage brokers, because they've got a pipeline of pre-approved clients, they need to get through that pipeline as quick as possible. Those clients don't want to be looking for three, six, nine months, especially in a rising market like this. Mm -hmm. So they refer them to me and I have the ability to close those properties, you know, those deals for them much faster. So it's a win-win for everybody. Okay. Let's talk about the business model. How, how do you make this work? You've got clients, you charge a fee. Yep. Tell us about that. So I charge, so first foremost, I mentioned this earlier, but I work with clients that got the ability to find their own properties. So if they want to use a buyer's agent or they can't do that legwork, they're going to use someone else. So it's not a service that's going to fit for them. But where I best work is with people that have got the ability to find their own home or investment property that they want to purchase. So I'll coach them up until that point to help them find those properties faster. And I don't charge them any money to do that. And I'll give them all the tips and techniques to find those listings. But when they have found the right property they want to chase, I get them to set me a target price, which is their maximum walkaway price. And I charge at that point, $2,000 upfront, 19.95 plus GST. And that's an upfront retainer that's charged once only. So if they miss out on a property or it takes them two or three goes, I don't charge them again for that. But once they set me a target price, I get to task on trying to buy it at that price or below. And I charge them a 15% performance fee of anything I save below that target. So if you give you an example, the property's on at a million and 50, they come to me and they give me a target price of a million. I secure it at 980. I've saved them $20,000, so I'll charge them 15% of that $20,000. So it's $3,000 performance fee in addition to the $2,000 up front. So what if, they come, what if they come to you and say, it's on for a million fifty, I want to get it for 900? Yeah, sure. People do this to me every day. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a really, it's probably the first question people ask me when they go to engage me, what's stopping me from setting you an unrealistic target price? And what I say to them is the whole purpose of me building this business was transparency. So I'm going to be brutally honest with you. How much do you want to own this property? You've come to me at this point because you need an assistance of an expert property negotiator. Do you want to be looking again in a month's time, three months time, six months time? No, you really want to buy the property. Okay. Give me the reasons why you think this property is worth 900,000. Because that's what I want to pay. Correct. So that's what, <laughs> so that's, so there'll be an element of people that say that that's just what I want to pay. And then there'll be an element of people that turn around and say, well, 
the comparables are 950, 970, 980, you know, and I say, okay, well, what realistically, where do you think you need to, you need to be to buy this property? And then I'm going to try and work backwards then from that point and save as much as I can, but you've got to be realistic in the first place. Otherwise it's a waste of your own time. So, so you I must turn have it back a, around to them. You must have a process that when someone says, you know, 900 and you know, it's not going to go for under 980, you must have a process that you're just looking, searching, finding comparables and yeah. going, yeah, look, realistically, you're, you're really kidding yourself. Yeah. And it's about 30 seconds work. You know? yes. And the other, you know, if you look on realestate.com, you'll see the last three sales or whatever that blow that out of the water. Well, that's an important point because yep. there's people looking on the market on at property for sale, not property sold. Yes. Because that's dreaming versus reality. Yeah. And I'll also say to people, look, if you really want to pay 900, I'll support that. Let me call the agent for you. I won't charge you. Don't pay the two grand up front. Let me just ring the agent for you now. I'll just do this as a service and I'll be back on the phone in a minute because I know the answer, right? I'm going to ring the agent. The agent will say, mate, you're absolutely dreaming. Like the last <laughs> one sold for 975. You're going to have to pay 980 plus to own this. I've got four contracts out or whatever. So it's, it literally is less than a minute. And I just bring them back and say, as I expected, you know, the agent's got interest at this level. Let's get serious about it. Do you want to buy this house? Do you need my help? Yeah. So with with the average negotiation, you know all the cues, you know the sentences, you know the key words when you're negotiating on behalf of a client, and so you you're essentially in a point where the agents they can't pull the wall over your eyes. You've seen it all before. Yeah. Well, I mean, I used to coach agents on those dialogues and scripts, so I've got a fair understanding of what lines they're going to use, but more importantly, when they're going to use that line so I can anticipate it and why they're using it. So you say certain things because you're hiding certain other things, right? Or you want to arrive at a different a different outcome or a different place. So I'll get a sense of um, when the line is coming and, in, and then that'll give me an indication of whether or not there's another buyer or really what the vendor's motivation is or where they are on price. Different to the current market now, but when a market's not hot, um, and I actually had Terry Wright in here the other day and uh, he said at the moment you could just th throw a dart at an Australian map and you're probably going to get a good chance of growth <laughs> at the moment because yep. sort of a once, maybe twice in a generation um, time that this is right now. Um, you wouldn't be old enough for the 85, 88 boom that happened. Well, I was born in 77. I'm 43, but I definitely don't know anything about the 80s real estate market. Yeah, so I, I was... I'm a couple, few years older than you, but 85 to 88, I remember my brother bought in that 17% interest rates, you know, properties doubled, almost doubled from 85 to 88. And so that's one, maybe twice in a generation that you'll see a market yep. that's going on like this. But the one thing that always drives me insane in markets that aren't hot is that a property could sit on the market for 200 days, you ring up and you're interested. And and there's always another buyer. There's always another, there's another buyer. contract out. There's you wouldn't believe it. Contract. Someone's coming on Monday. Unbelievable. Yeah, they'll have their finance ready by Thursday. So, at what point yeah. in time? Like for me, I think the figures for me, if I was to guess it, would be like ninety-five percent untrue, five percent true in the cases I've had over the years. Yeah. How do you handle it? Uh well, I just know how to read through the shit, right? So you you know, and that's exactly going back to the point that I just said. As soon as you you know these things, you know those reasons, and if you ask a few more key questions and push a bit harder. You'll, you'll get to understand the motivation and whether or not really there is another buyer there. And um, I guess it's just sense of timing for me, um, understanding the agent speak and to be able to see through it and, and punch holes through it and get the right outcome for my clients. But I'll give you a good example of this. This happens to me every single week. Um, I'll uh, say on a Tuesday or a Wednesday before the Saturday auction, my clients will ring me. They'll give me their instructions on what they want to do if they want me to bid or make a pre-auction offer or wherever it may be. And they'll ask me, you know, where it's at and 
can I speak to the agent? And I'll ring the agent. But before that, I'll say to the owner or the, the purchase that I'm working with, I'll dial you into the call so you can hear everything that's going on as well, the dialogue, just so you understand you know, what's happening, what the agent's telling me. If you want to be involved, otherwise I'll tell you what happens. Mm -hmm. And I'll say to, you, say to them at that point, this is exactly what I expect the agent will say to me on this call on this day. And word for word, <laughs> the agent will pick up the phone and say, you know, we've got a really motivated seller. Don't miss this opportunity to be there. It's going to get sold on the day. They've got to sell. They've committed elsewhere, whatever it might be. But I can give you the exact line Script. on the same day. Yep. And my buyers just like cry themselves laughing because they, they I've said exactly what the agent's going to say in advance. Yep. And it's just, it's so... It's so scripted, the whole industry. They're, they're coached by the same people. They use the same throwaway lines at the same point. So if you do this long enough and often enough and you've been behind the scenes, and this is why you go back to the buyer's agent conversation. If someone's never been an agent or they don't buy or negotiate at the volume that, that you do as an agent, how do you understand the nuts and bolts of a deal? Mm. How, do you, how have you got enough life experience in that job to put yourself or your client in the best position possible. You can't. So all these buyers agents running around saying they're great negotiators. I'm like, you negotiate once on one property. That agent is negotiating with the vendor from yep. before they listed it, mm -hmm. the whole way through the campaign. That agent is negotiating against you, plus maybe five, six, seven, 20 other buyers in the same campaign. They've just got so much more negotiation experience than you. Yep. They can out bluff you, they can outmaneuver you. They train on scripts and dialogues every mm -hmm. day. You don't. Yep. Yeah. And that's so who you reckon is the better negotiator. Yeah. That's your strength because you've yeah. been, been there, done that for so many years. Totally. So I just, I, I, I bite back a bit when buyers agents say to me that they're, you know, exceptional negotiators and they've, they've got, you know, the ability to win all these deals off market, which is yeah. a giant furphy as well. I mean, I consider myself to be a reasonable negotiator. I love the thrill of the chase. I, I, I love it. Um, once I got the deal, man, whatever. <laughs> it's sort of, it's that part of it. Um, but my best mate is Steve McKnight and um, he's bought and sold a property every week as an investor um, for the last 19 years. Well, he knows his stuff, right? Yeah. And so, you know, he- He comes same from a thing position is, of knowledge and power. Absolutely. The same thing as you, you know, the, you know, the walk away. That, that's when the agent's going, oh shit, I've poked the bear too much here. Um, I'll have to start to settle it down again. And, and he's really interesting to talk to. Auctions, you you go to you bid at auctions too. I bid at auctions. I normally do two or three a weekend for clients across the country. Over yeah. the phone. I always over the phone. I don't meet any clients. I don't see any properties. What's the legal process now if you're bidding over the phone on behalf of someone else? They have to you give just you authority. Have to register. Yeah, authority. It's simple to do it. Yep. yep. Um, so you're not actually in there. Like I, I love being face to face at auctions because you're watching the the bidders yep. going in and you know when you've got them or haven't got them depending on your style. Um, That's a really interesting point that I'll hang you up on there. Yep. That I think is that I disagree with. Go on. So many people say to me, you know, and you see this written a lot in the property industry about their auction strategies and the rest of it. I firmly believe, as I said to you up front, having seen thousands of auctions and been running those as an auction agent as well, coaching agents to do this, you know, selling 20 or 25 auctions a month as a team, that the person with the deepest pockets and their hand up last wins yep. every auction. Absolutely. Right? There might be the occasional one where you put pressure on people and they crack because they're super emotional about it. But the commercial reality of it is, you know, you've got to have the, the highest bidder the highest going bidder is going to win, right? So I, I say to people this the whole time, like I don't necessarily I don't need to be there because I don't I don't the rest of it's theatre to yes, me. It it's just numbers. I am brutal. I am a non-emotional third party, and that's why you want me in your pocket because 
I, you know, no one can pull the wool over me at that point, and, and I don't need to see them face to face to kind of realize that. I just, I just want to know the numbers and I want to know the dialogue and control that as best I can. And I said that uh, last night we were talking about auction techniques and doing this and doing that, and Steve's got a particular technique and I've got one too. And I said exactly that, and you know, Josh will back you. In the end, someone who's going to pay more than you is going to pay more than yeah. you. Like it just doesn't matter what you do in there. Totally. Um, occasionally, you'll be able to throw them off their kilt, but that's about it. But buyers have got um, buyers get really worked up about this. Like the general public, like the people that I deal with, they really stress about it and they listen to every word the agent tells them. And when the agent <laughs> tells them that, you know, oh my god, we've got the reserve back and it's it's way less than we thought. And you know, when you make a pre-auction offer and they tell you that, you know, it's it's thanks for your offer, but it's not enough. Um, but the auction will be less than that on the day and that'll buy it on the day. And it's like, well, hang on, none of that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, so in other words, hang on, we've quoted a price, you've offered an exceptional price that's way above our guide price, which we're, we're legally allowed to quote. We're not going to accept that because we've got tons of other people telling us it's worth that or more. We're going to lie to you about that and reject your offer. Now I'm going to lie to you again and bait you about the reserve price being yeah. less to get you along to auction day. It's like lies, lies, and lies. And I don't it's, even know the reserve day that reserve until auction most days yeah well, most vendors don't set it to the day before or on the yeah, day, on the day yeah. yeah and you and and the agent's got no control out of that so even if they knew on a tuesday on saturday morning the agent could, i mean the vendor could turn around and say actually yeah. i want 100 grand more yeah well, yeah so what do you do so that that must make it difficult for you especially in a hot market to buy something at auction when the price has been set by your client um, yeah, my preference isn't to bid at auction if I can. Right. So all those ones that I've bid at auction are, are for two reasons. One, they instructed me way too late, like in week four on the two days before the auction, for the first time I've spoken to them, for example. Right. Or um, we've they've got me nice and early, which is my preference, and I try and make an offer to stop it um, during the campaign, and that, it's not enough, and then the, the buyers still want to go along to auction and, and bid for it. But one thing happens every time, that if you miss out on a strong offer that you make pre-auction, that you're always going to pay more for it on the day. And most of my clients end up missing out because they set the parameters around where they feel is fair market value. And then when it goes to a competitive process, they're just mentally not in that headspace to pay another 50, 100 grand, 150 grand for it. Right. So I, I often think that if we miss it at that point, we might as well just move on okay. rather than wait three weeks and compete at the auction and do all the, the hanging on. The theater. Yep. Um, so with, with the market the way it is now it's extremely hot um which throws more tendency towards auctions what's your success rate if you can put a percentage to it to a property that's going to auction where you think you can get it you can pull it off the market and, and get it on behalf of your client beforehand yeah that's a really hard question actually and i could probably give you those figures if i went and actually looked it up and look back at the history of it um I mean, you've got no control over a number of different things. You know, how many buyers you're competing against at mm -hmm. every auction. So every auction is different. So the buyer depth is key to it. The vendor's expectations price-wise and motivation, and then the buyer's budget. So for me, to hang my hat on and say, well, I'm only successful 30% of the time, there's so many variables that affect that that are out of my control. But what about not getting it to auction? So you actually get stopping it off the it? market, stopping it. Yeah. Um, I'd say we're probably in the 40 to 50% That's not range. Bad. Yeah. I'd say that level, at least less than half anyway, for sure. And that, that most of that would be dialogue and understanding of- It's all dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, it's all dialogue because they're only gonna sell it to you. You're, like by virtue of, of um, winning the property, you're gonna be the highest bidder, right? So whether you buy it prior to auction, they'd perceive you to be the highest bidder if you're selling to you at that point. 
So you've got to really control the, the, the process as best you can. And, um, and how I typically do that in an auction environment, pre-auction in that situation to buy it is by introducing time pressure and a second property. Um, because you've got to reverse the fear of loss at that point and right. try and take control of it as best you can. But yeah, it's difficult to do. That's the challenge in this market. What about, you know, it's very difficult to get, uh, take New South Wales out because they've got five day cooling off and yep. know, unless they sign a 66W. Um, in other markets around the country, you can put conditions in, obviously finance, due diligence, building and pest. Um, All of which are weak points in your offer though in this market. So that's my question. Yep. What, you know, does that mean you need to start releasing, removing, um, and possibly putting yourself at risk? Well, I do it a different way. So, well, putting yourself at risk is correct because if you leave it a few days longer, you're definitely exposing yourself to being um, beaten by somebody else. But if you can, if you can have really clear dialogue and be upfront and open with the agent to say how seriously interested you are and how strong an offer you're going to make, but very quickly get your ducks lined up and do a building and pest inspection or a strata report or whatever you need to do evaluation, then you can remove a lot of those mm -hmm. um, speed humps and put yourself in a position where it's a much cleaner offer. So that's what I try to do with my clients. Um, so the term I use is speed kills. And I say that to all my clients when I first speak to them to say, I'm going to push you to a level of uncomfortableness that, and it's based around speed because most buyers will go and see something on the Saturday at the first open or can't make it. I need to go shopping on that day. I'll, I'll get there next Saturday, at which point you've got 10 or 20 competitors, multiple contracts out. It just makes my job really difficult and for you to buy it um, at that point very hard as well. So I say to them, you've got to see it before the market or at that first open home. And then if you like it, get me on the phone the minute you walk out of the open for inspection. I'll start building a strategy and start researching it. I want your instruction that night and I want to have a building and pest lined up to do Monday. And if that means bribing a building and pest guy, paying them 200 bucks cash in addition to what they normally charge to jump the queue for four days, Whatever you have to do, if this is the property that you want to buy, get yourself in a position to do it before anyone else. Because most buyers just drag their feet. They'll wait till Monday, Tuesday, they'll talk about it with Uncle Pete and mum and dad and workshop it at work with their friends. And then they'll get around to waiting on the building and pest inspection that the agent's coordinating that another buyer's doing that's going to be ready next Wednesday. Um, and by that point, you've just opened up the floodgates to everybody else. So speed is, is paramount to the success in buying property at the right price. What's your biggest paid success? Because I know you had an unpaid success, but um, you know, what's the biggest drop in um, strike price have you have you done for a client? Under target price? Under target price. 800 grand. Yeah. And my average below target price up till Christmas time was 23,500 below the, the client set target what's the, price. What's the average buy price? Uh, around one and a quarter million. So 1.25. Yeah. 2.1%. And so you're saving them 2.1%. Yeah. But you've got to remember that's below the target price they set me. So it might be 10% below yeah. the asking price right. or whatever it might be. So it's very difficult to market my business on the basis of how much money I save people. Mm. So I've, I initially set the business up when I was, when I was um, in its infancy saying it was Australia's only um, no win, no fee property negotiation business. So I completely put myself on the line and right. said, I'll work for free unless I can buy it below the target price at or below the target price. But the problem with that is I had to keep going out and market myself to um, new customers saying I'm saving X below the target price. So the new buyers come in, just set that bar lower every time. Right. So that's why I had to put a retainer in place. It also weeds out the waste of time buyers and makes people get serious about it straight away with yep. a real target price rather than, you know, they're not going to spend two grand to pay the retainer and just waste my time offering 900 on a million and 50, as you said before. So that really, you know, sorts out the serious buyers from the time wasters.
So the 800k one was overseas? was in London, um, but I've done others. Like I did one in Dolan's Bay in New South Wales and Sydney. I think I saved them about 600 grand at 5 million. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, they're big numbers. I mean, if you talk about, uh, rather than focus on the dollars, I focus on the percentage because yeah. that's more important to me because I buy at every price point. So um, thank God I did this one. I bought my in-laws house, the one next door to where I am, as I said to you, last year and uh, went through the whole process. I told them, let's treat it as a hollow house business deal because I don't want to get involved in this family. You know, you set me a target price. Let's do the, the due diligence together and make sure you're comfortable with it. They set me a target, I think, of 385 and I bought it for 320 and whatever the numbers this were. This is a waterfront. A waterfront, three-bedroom three, townhouse, north-facing in Mermaid Waters last year. For three? 320 yeah. <laughs> what's it worth It was today? the best deal I've probably bought out of the... Well, it'd be very close to the best deal I've ever bought out of the 27 properties I've bought for myself. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, and they were they were sight unseen. They were on holidays in Sydney, seeing their other daughter. Right, and I rang them and said, "I've found a property for you. I'll buy this. I'll sort it out." It came on on the Friday afternoon. I bought it on the Sunday lunchtime. Yeah, right. And they hadn't even seen it. Yeah, that's extraordinary. Like, you wouldn't be able to buy that. Like, meth, what, meth what, what do you think it was really worth? Um, it was worth probably about four hundred to four twenty. And why did you get it so cheap? Uh, it was Sorry. a meth. How? Why did you negotiate it so well? That was a uh, yeah. different sentence. Well, a couple of things. It was a horrible meth house. So it literally had like drug holes in the walls and syringes and things like that. It was a horrible, horrible place. But they were happy to gut it if they could get it at the right price. So that was irrelevant. But that would have turned tons of people off. Mm. And I knew that. But over time, people would realize that they were going to renovate anyway. So it was irrelevant. But it would take them two, three, four days. I know to this yep. from being an estate agent, how long it takes people to realize this. The penny drops, it's the right one, and then they jump into it. Mm -hmm. So um, I rushed. I rushed the agent. Um, it turns out that it was going to um, like a foreclosure if he didn't sell it by a certain day. And it had, he had 11 days to exchange and settle it. So there was no other buyers that were able so to do this. But we offer. didn't know this. Yeah. So I just made it an all cash offer and bought it on the spot on Saturday afternoon and settled basically instantly. So um, it was just one of those freak things that happened. And, and you, because I knew the market, I knew it was value. I knew what we could do with it. I knew what it was going to cost to renovate it. And I knew the downside and you upsides. You already owned your one too? No, I didn't own our one. What did you pay for yours? 535 <laughs> last year in November. But there's a story with mine as well, which is interesting. But yeah, substantially more than more than theirs. But theirs is worth, um, they spent 175 grand on the refurb. So let's call it that it owes them just under 500,000. Theirs is probably worth 700,000 yeah, straight right. away. So they've got 200 grand equity in it. How um, amazing in you know in, in a year um, and probably 150 of that without a rising market you know just straight out of you know just buying in in, in the market and that's what that's been my skill set the whole time like people will say to you oh, i bought this and i sold it for x and i made lots of money but yeah but you sat on it for three years or four years like i've done deals where um i, I bought a studio apartment in Potts point always off other people never my own stock so never insider trading yep. always on the open market i bought a studio um for like two, i can't remember the numbers to say 215 grand in Potts point years ago and I had a five-week settlement, and I found another buyer for it and sold it before I owned it. So I instantly settled on it and flipped it and made seventy-five thousand dollars yep. on a studio. Yeah, so it was like thirty percent in five weeks. Twenty-two square meters or something. Yeah. So it's just it's if you know the market, you can spot these odd ones, and they don't come up very often. Mm. But you've got to be able to act on it like grease lightning and and do it really fast. So my one, the one that I, that we just bought next door to them. Um, so it's a long story. The short of it is we were, we've been developing the houses and we want to buy a knockdown at Mermaid Beach and build a house and we haven't been able to find the one that we want. So we knew we were going to go and rent for a year, two years in between while we did that because I wanted the equity out of our house and the cash out of the one we were in. 
So it was going to cost me 100 grand in rent, 120 grand in rent. And we're going to have to live in someone else's house that we didn't want to live in and, you know, the pain points of all that. And I saw them um, renovating, like starting to renovate the one, two doors up from, from Nan and Pops. And I knew the guy that was, um, that manages the village, the townhouse. And I went to him and said, what are they doing with this one? And he said, well, it's a really rare one. It's semi-detached. All the others are sort of attached and it's got eight meters of waterfront. All the others have got five. It's got an extra whole half a house on the side. So it's much bigger land and much bigger per square meter internally. It's the pick of the whole sort of complex like that. Um, but the owners had it for 25 years, it's been a rental property. It's horrible inside. They want to tart it up and put it on the market and sell it for 560 in February. This was in September, October. And I said to them, um, go to her, offer a 525 grant and not touch anything further, just down tools and go away. And he did. And then she came back and ended up buying it for 10 grand more, but it suited us to buy it a, because mum, you know, in-laws are next door. So we have a lot of family traveling from Sydney and, mm -hmm. and New Zealand. So it's a great fit for us. B, the kids are next door, to their grandparents yep. and C, we were going to go and spend 100, 120 grand on rent. So for us, it was, we were going to have instant equity in this property. It was a smarter business decision for us to pay that. So it, for, for that number, it worked for me perfectly. Yeah, yeah. And it was no point being silly, trying to chip 10 or 20 grand, just buy it and be happy with it's, it. It's often the thing I see a lot, people haggling over price. They get cute and, you know, with conditions and then they want to, you know, their ego gets stuck, but oh, two and a half grand, I'm not paying an extra two yeah. and a half grand. What's two and a half grand in 10 years time? Well, the market's moving at that point, 10 grand a month at the moment. So it's <laughs> yes. just, just another week of waiting. But we, we renovated that. I gutted it, spent 150 grand in cash on it. And so I'm in for um, just under 700 and I reckon I could sell it today for 850. Yeah. So I made 150 grand tax instead free paying, in it. Instead of paying 120. Yeah, instead of paying, going backwards in the other end. So. Yeah. Um, a lot of people say that negotiation is about winning. True. Uh, partly yes, because you want to win, right? That's the aim of the game. But if you want to dig that, you know, you want to dig into that further, then the answer is no, because the ultimate outcome for me is to be win, win, win. You know, it's got to be a fair outcome. So I, I, the way that I aim to do this is to control the negotiation as best I can, but make the agent feel like he's in complete control. And that's a real skill. That's very, very difficult to do. Um, and it's, it's, I, I quite like messing with, agents, inexperienced agents' minds by, <laughs> fun, know, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, by making them feel like they've got me and they won and the rest of it, but I had 20, 30, 50, 100 grand more up my sleeve. Yep. Um, yeah, it's, it's fun doing that. That's, that's the, the bit that you said before, like you enjoy, enjoy that. That's the fun part for me as well. I love that battle. So great business model, amazing, you know, the turnover that you're getting, like you've got how, how many average do you negotiate on a week? Um, I've bought eight houses in the last 10 days around yeah. the country. Yeah. But not, I mean, I'm negotiating every day on a property because you don't win them all. Um, but I would probably buy on average, typically two properties a week is probably pretty normal for me. Right. Yep. It's just only, a particularly busy time right now. There's only one problem with your business model. You don't own the business? No. <laughs> the business is Scott Haggart. Yeah, 100%. 100%. How, how, can you grow this business? Can you can you train someone to do what you know? Well, I mean, a good agent that's had the career that I have had would definitely be able to um, do this in Melbourne, Perth or whatever and 
maybe I could build a business of negotiation experts and sit atop of that across the country. But it comes back to what we talked about before, which is the lifestyle part of it, right? Like I got out of having 25 staff and working really hard. I don't really have, well, I don't, I'll be honest. I don't have ambitions to have a whole team of people. I, I, I'm very happy earning to a certain level, but being complete control of my own destiny. No one tells me what to do or where I need to be. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's a nice lifestyle to have. So in life, I constantly ask friends and in business and mates and family about this, and there's no right or wrong answer, but I'll ask you the same question. Like how much money is enough? It's something that led me to the lifestyle I've got now. Yeah. Because I had, I had and was building to a ridiculous amount of money and I look at it now and it, it actually I was, I was less than half a day away from suicide because the yeah. money didn't make me happy. Yeah. And I don't mean it from an ego perspective in terms of how big is your bank balance. I mean, how much do you need to earn a year to be before you just think, do you know what? That's enough work to do per week or per month or whatever. Now I'm missing the kids, you know, or I want to, I, I don't want to do that deal. I want to go and hang out at the park and push them on the swings. And I, I, I guess I've just got to that point where I'm like 38 and out of real estate. And I'm like, okay, well I can do, how can I do this smarter and build a business around lifestyle and then how much is enough then so to answer your question yes it's very difficult because it's hard to leverage my time um, i just mentioned to you before walking in that i've just done a pitch deck on another business mm -hmm. because i've already arrived at the same point right in terms of there's only so much of of scott agate that you can that you can do and for me to grow the business just means i've got to be more on my phone which yeah. means my wife's going to be upset with that and the kids aren't going to see me as much so i agree totally i mean it this thing i, I I just feel so grateful for the position I'm in. You know, I my team reckons I work hard. I actually don't think I work that hard. <laughs> well, um, if you love it, you, it doesn't feel like work yeah, to a certain degree. But I've got choice, you know. Yeah, I'm here talking powerful. to you this morning. By 2 o'clock this afternoon, whatever, I'll do whatever I like, whenever I like. I work from home. You know, it's exactly what you're talking about, exactly yeah. what you're doing. And I've got choice and freedom to do what I want to do. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to, this is going to sound horrible. Um, I started playing uh, wog ball soccer again. And um, I don't know why, but the competitive edge got back into me, white line fever. And I'm growing, I'm playing with over 35s. Most of us are over the age of 40. And some of them can't pay the $420 yeah. for retro. And they have to pay it off on, on, you know, installments, installments. And I'm going, I got, I, I mean, it, it sounds so wrong for me to say that you should be in a better position to do that. Life circumstances don't often give you that, but I look at it and I think, I think you could have more control and it's just a bit of a headspace thing to say, I should be able to earn, I should be able to do more, you know, and it's not about working more or working harder. Just being smarter about yeah, it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but again, I mean, I don't want to sound like a tool, uh, you know, or an ungrateful person with the position I am. I'd said I'm grateful. Like I've, you know, you've seen the river I live on. Um, certainly, probably not a canal like yours, but it's a nice spot. It's got pool sharks like mine. It's got pool sharks. There you go. Um, We've... Not not that I've ever been attacked by one. <laughs> um, I reckon it's a furphy. But anyway, have you seen any? I, I never have, but there's lots of, um, you know. There's been lots sightings. of attacks and sightings in, yeah. in the Gold Coast. I can't, waterways, see any, so. I can't see any attacks or found any news articles up yeah. here for the last 50 no years. No one swims anyway, let me put it that way in Gold yeah. Coast. But I grew up swimming in those canals <laughs> and I can show you there was lots of sharks there the whole time. And yeah. I swam with a dog, which was the worst thing you can possibly do. <laughs> um, leads heaps of stingrays down here. Yeah. Um, but that's about it. What's your advice to someone 
that feels like they're going to miss out if they don't buy something right now? Oh, the old FOMO, eh? Well, I mean, I think you've got to understand the bigger picture. Why are you buying a property? Why is it important for you to do that? And what are the positives in doing that now versus doing it tomorrow? Um, if you've got the financial capability to do it and stay within your means, and if that's going to leverage you, you know, financially in life and get ahead, then it's probably a decision that's a smart one to do it. And if you're going to do it this year, I would do it sooner rather than later because you're in a rapidly rising market. It's probably going to get more expensive for you in six months, 12 months time. Um, but I think a lot of people in Australia, I used the word contact sport before. I get a lot of like 19, 20 year olds and things say to me, you know, I'm saving up to buy a property. And I think that's brilliant. And you know, it's really positive that people want to get on that journey, but I, I'm also um, one that it's for living life. You know, mm. like I'm a terrible property investor. I've had 27 properties. Um, I should be really wealthy. Um, I'm comfortable, but I could be a lot wealthier if I held on to those properties, but I put priority on life experiences. So while lots of my friends and family had their heads down working really hard, I was in Italy, you know, having a great time or traveling all over the world. I think I did somewhere between six and 12 weeks overseas every year while I was a real estate agent. Um, so I guess it's just down to priorities, right? Like mm. if you, what's the most important thing to you? And and I, I just, I don't like people diving into the property market too early unless they've had a bit of life experience and can actually enjoy themselves because I think you just end up working really hard and don't get to see the big picture. It's nice. I'm a little bit opposite on that. Yeah, I mean, the way again, that the way that I did it, like I just went hard at it from eighteen. Like I'm twenty nine, thirty years this year in property, um, while my friends were out and about traveling the world and whatever. Here I was working hard to to pay for those properties, especially the shitty properties that I bought back then. But they set me up, yeah, to but do you may, what, but to, to to have the freedom I got today. Yeah, and you may not regret missing out on those opportunities, but they would have potentially and yeah, i would have so absolutely. it's down it's horses for courses right Personal, so yeah. and you just i think you just got to know who you are and um that's why i guess it's hard to be giving generalized advice it's not like that but so you're happy to take on more clients always yeah hellohouse.co .co that's it thanks God. couldn't get hellohouse.com <laughs> <laughs> what is hellohouse.com i don't know i think there's an interior design agency in the uk that's hellohouse.com right um but look, you, the clients that use me are normally referred into me or have seen me for some reason, so there's no problems finding me. So, Okay, awesome. Um, thanks for coming in today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. There you have it, Scott Agate. What an interesting guy. Very deep and thought-provoking. I hope that you get to use his services and save yourself a huge bundle of cash on the next purchase of your property. As always, you can follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Facebook. And you can also get to more information at ianugarte.com.au. We'll see you in the next episode of Small Talk, Big Ideas. Thanks for tuning in to the Small Talk, Big Ideas podcast. We hope we've succeeded in our goal to inspire and challenge you. And we look forward to catching you on the next episode of Small Talk Big Ideas with Ian Ugarte.